Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. A word of warning before we start. This episode contains details of sexual assault and bad language. Listener discretion is advised. In the past couple of months, two words have ricocheted around the world, starting discussions and raising challenging questions. Me too. If you're on any kind of social media, I am sure you've seen the hashtag me too. It happened to me too. Me too. It's hashtag me too. It happened to me too. The slogan, first uttered in 2006 by activist Tarana Burke, has become the rallying cry of thousands of people calling out sexual harassment and assault. The groundswell of support has come in the wake of a powerful act of journalism. The New York Times' publication of a series of sexual assault allegations against Harvey Weinstein. So, this could be a show about that. About the power of change that can come when women are believed. When those in power are forced to take them seriously. When the world can't do anything but stare straight at the truth of the things that happen in the shadows. But this isn't that story. Quite the opposite. At least, it doesn't start that way. I'm Maven Clenigan. This is The Tip-Off. Ken Armstrong was working at the Seattle Times when he first read a story that would stick with him. This was back in 2011. That's when the news first became public that a serial rapist had been arrested in Colorado and that police had discovered evidence showing that he had raped a woman in Linwood, Washington. Linwood isn't far from where Ken lived, so the fact that a serial rapist had been in the area was shocking enough. But there was another detail in the story that caught Ken's attention. There amongst the news coverage was a brief mention of one of the abuser's victims, a local woman who had become known as Marie. She had been attacked in her own home a few years ago, but when she went to the police and her family, they hadn't believed her. Only now, the truth about what she had suffered was coming out. It made for grim reading. But the news stories left Ken with more questions than answers. What I didn't see in any of the coverage was Marie's voice. She had never spoken publicly about what she had gone through. Those missing pieces bugged Ken. So, a few years later, when he found himself working at the Marshall Project, a not-for-profit that specialises in criminal justice reporting, he cast his mind back and remembered that case. At that time, 
I decided to try to reach out to Marie to see if she might be willing to share her story, particularly since time had passed now. You know, it had been a number of years since all of this had unfolded. And I also decided to see if I could reconstruct the police investigation. So I started gathering all the records that I could to see where the detectives' doubts started, um, how they spread, and what were the missteps that occurred. So he knew he wanted to look into it. But to do that, he needed to get Marie to talk to him. But this was clearly a traumatic story. So how do you do that? I, I went through an intermediary. I, I thought it could be jarring for Marie if she heard directly from me um, with either a, a cold call or you know, a knock on the door or even a letter. So I knew the name of her attorney. Um, she had filed a civil suit against the Linwood Police Department over all that had happened. And the name of her attorney was in those filings. So I reached out to him to let him know who I was, what I was working on, why I was interested in the story. And I asked if he would reach out to Marie on my behalf. And what he asked me to do was to write him a long email you know, describing the Marshall Project, the kind of work that it did, and why we felt the story was important and what benefits might come from writing about it in the way that we envisioned. So Ken drafted a long and carefully crafted email, and then another, and another. A dialogue had started. And I let Marie ask all the questions that she had before I ever asked one question of my own. You know, I wanted to make sure that she understood um, how it would work, what might come from it, and just make sure that she was comfortable with her decision you know, before we went any further. For months, emails went pinging back and two. It, it took seven months. And until the seventh month, I, I didn't know if she would agree or not. Then, one day, Ken's phone rang. It was a call from the lawyer. Um, he called to let me know that Marie was agreeable, that she decided that she did want to talk. So it was on. Ken could start investigating. And he wouldn't be working alone. The Marshall Project had decided to team up with another podcast and radio show you might just have heard of. This American Life. So we were going to do a print story online, and we were going to do a radio show for This American Life. So months after first making contact with her lawyers, Ken and This American Life producer Robin Simeon headed out to Linwood to meet Marie and hear her story. It was a sunny day as Ken and Robin arrived to meet Marie at her flat. Ken had only worked in print before, so when he met Robin after her long flight from New York, he wasn't sure just what kind of recording equipment she'd be dragging with her. I had this vision in my head that there would be a lot of audio equipment, large, intimidating-looking audio equipment that might make Marie more anxious. And that wasn't the case at all. Robin had a very small recorder and a microphone. 
And it was as casual and as informal um, as you can imagine. It also helped that Robin was there conducting the interview with me. You know, so you had both a man and a woman conducting the interview. Over the course of a few hours, sat in her apartment, Marie told them horrifying details of what had happened. She had been 18 at the time. She'd had a hard life, growing up in and out of group homes and foster families. But at 18, she was doing okay. She was living in a small apartment complex, supported by a youth work charity called Project Ladder. And it was hers, a safe space. One Sunday in August 2008, Marie was pottering around the flat. She had been cleaning up and moving the clutter she didn't need outside through a sliding glass door. Then she went to church and hung out with friends for a while, and then settled in for the evening. She called her friend Jordan. The two had dated on again and off again for a while, and they were still close. In the end, they wound up talking on the phone well into the night. So it was well past five in the morning when Marie finally fell asleep. The following description, a clip from This American Life, comes from Marie. And just a warning, it's hard to hear. Um, I got off the phone and went to sleep. And then opened my eyes and there was somebody in my house. He had a knife in his hand and was wearing a mask. He blindfolded me and gagged me and tied my hands behind my back. She had woken to find a masked man in her room. He tied her up blindfolded, gagged and raped her. He took photographs. He said if she told the police, he would post them online. His attack seemed well rehearsed. He knew what he was doing. As he was leaving, Marie remembered, he apologised. He said he felt stupid, it looked better in his head, and then he was gone. Sat across from her, Ken found the details hard to listen to. It was emotionally wrenching at times. Um, there were periods where we just took long breaks and, and let Marie collect, um, let her take a deep breath. You know, we ate lunch separately to give her some more time, you know, to herself. Um, we, we kind of let her dictate what the schedule would be that day. We just made sure that we had all of our questions in hand and that we were able to ask them you know, before the day was over, which we were. She was, she was remarkably understanding and accommodating. Marie told Ken how after the horrifying attack, she'd called those nearest to her, her foster mother, Peggy, and another woman who'd been a guardian in the past, called Shannon. And she'd phoned the police. This man was armed, methodical, and highly dangerous. She knew other women could be at risk. The police arrived at her flat and took notes. Over the coming days, they would talk to her many more times, Marie told Ken, until one day, things changed. It was a week after she'd first contacted the police when Marie found herself walking through the corridors of the Linwood Police Station. The police officers had questioned her about the details of the attack over and over again. And 
Peggy and Shannon had started to voice their concerns about the details too. And now, a bombshell. Faced with all these questions and doubts about what had happened, Marie had recanted her story, told the police she'd made it up. She was charged with a gross misdemeanour and made to apologise to the other young people in the youth support group she was in. She lost a lot of friends. People looked at her differently now. The thing was, Marie hadn't made up the rape. It had happened, and it had happened to other women too. So how could an 18-year-old victim come to be so quickly written off by those tasked with protecting her? Ken wanted to find out more. He needed to talk to those closest to her, to hear their side of things. And Marie was able to put him in touch. After we interviewed Marie, um, she she was still in contact with, with both of her foster mothers. And she reached out to them to let them know what we were doing and why. So the police were there and Marie was sitting on the floor crying. This is Marie's foster mother, Peggy. It comes from a clip from This American Life. After the attack, Marie had called her. And at first, everyone was horrified by the story. It seemed like the stuff of nightmares. But little by little, doubts started to grow. Here's more of what Peggy told Ken. I sat down next to her and she was telling me what happened. And I, I got this, I'm a big uh, Law & Order fan. And I, got, I just got this really weird feeling. It was like, I felt like she was telling me the script of a law and law and order story. She was detached, detached, emotionally detached from what she was saying. She described how something about the way Marie was acting in the hours and days after felt off to her. And it wasn't just Peggy and her other foster mother Shannon that started to question Marie's story. The police did too. Ken wanted to find out more about how they'd gone about investigating the alleged attack. To do that, he knew he needed documents. So for weeks he worked, pulling together as many reports and bits of paperwork as he could. I, I asked if they had done any kind of internal review after the fact to, to basically go back and reconstruct how they got this wrong. Um, I also asked if there had been any kind of external review. Um, had they asked any outside agency to come in and examine how they got this so wrong. Using Freedom of Information Act requests, Ken obtained documents from both Linwood Police Force and the Prosecuting Attorney's Office. After going back and to to get everything he could out of them, Ken laid out all the records he had, more than a thousand pages in total, and they were incredibly useful. So it's almost like they write a chronological narrative in these documents saying, Here's what we did next in our investigation. Here's what we learned. Then we did this. Then we did that. He'd take all that information and plug it into a timeline. And you see what they learned, the order in which they learned it, and how they acted in response. That's really what I wanted. I wanted to see where did they, when did they first doubt and how did the doubt spread. The reports charted had the lead investigator, Sergeant Mason, had heard from Peggy and Shannon about their doubts. And there were little inconsistencies in the details that Marie had told him in her interviews too. She'd get the order of details wrong. And then Mason had also got a tip that Marie was unhappy with her apartment. 
It could be she was making up the rape to get moved to a new one. When he called her one day to ask her to come to the station for more questions, her response concerned him. Am I in trouble? she asked. It was all those pieces together that led Mason to conclude that Marie was lying and that the rape had never happened. He was wrong. It was months into his reporting, and Ken had tons of amazing detail by this point, from paperwork to the heart-wrenching interviews with Marie and her loved ones. He knew this was going to be a big story. But then one day, Ken got an email from his editor. And his email started with two words. I hope I'm allowed to, to cuss, because the two words were, oh shit. They had just found out that more than a thousand miles away, another reporter was onto the same story. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger. Feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. So let's recap. Ken had been working for months on a story. An incredible deep dive into just how and why a young woman came to be disbelieved following a sexual assault, and then prosecuted by the police for making the claim in the first place. Ken had spent months doggedly tracking down leads, patiently building up trust with Marie and her family. But now, it looked like it could all be for nothing. It looked like the story was about to get scooped. So, we were well into our reporting on what had happened in Washington when I received an email from my uh, boss at the Marshall Project, from Bill Keller. Um, Bill is the former executive editor of the New York Times, and he's currently the uh, executive editor of the Marshall Project. And his email started with two words. Uh, I hope I'm allowed to, to cuss because the two words were, oh shit. 
not the words you want to see an email start with by any means. Holding his breath, Ken double-clicked on the email and nervously scanned the message inside. So I opened up the email and learned that Bill had been contacted by somebody at ProPublica. And it was an editor who Bill knew. The ProPublica editor told Bill that they had discovered they were working on the same story as me. A reporter at ProPublica, T. Christian Miller, had seen the same old news reports about the story that Ken had. And he too had been following leads and tracking down contacts for months. Until, just like Ken, he had wound up on the trail of Marie and had fired off an email to her lawyer. And almost the first thing he said was, well, I don't know why you're interested in this because there's another reporter who's already working on this. This is T. Christian Miller. And that's one of these kind of like heart in your throat moments in journalism when you find out there's a, a competitor working on it. And so I asked, and I said, well, well, who is it? And it's Ken Armstrong. And Ken Armstrong is he's probably too uh, humble to tell you this, but uh, he's been nominated or won eight Pulitzer Prizes. So and I knew of him professionally. We had met several times at various conferences. And so then I knew that this is a very serious reporter uh, working on the story. There's nothing quite like the sinking feeling in your stomach at the idea of being scooped on a story. After months of work and obsessive toil, the idea that your story could slip away from you can be sickening. And journalists are competitive by nature. Many people's reaction would be, right, scramble, get the story out. But not this time. This time, T and ProPublica contacted Ken to suggest something else, that they work together on the reporting. That's pretty unusual in journalism circles. Um, certainly years back, years ago, that would not have happened. You know, if two competing news organizations discovered they were working on the same story, what would have happened instead was that they would have rushed to print to beat the competitor. In this case, we decided to, to collaborate and to pool our resources. And once ProPublica reached out to us, we took a deep breath and agreed to team up. You know, we realized that the most important thing was to get the story right instead of getting it first. As Ken heard more about what ProPublica had, he realized just how well this could work. There was also a serendipitous element to this, which is I had done the bulk of my reporting in Washington state, looking at the police investigation that went wrong. The ProPublica reporter, T. Miller, had done the bulk of his reporting in Colorado, looking at the police investigation done right. So we weren't duplicating each other's work. It's almost as though we each had half of the story. So when we decided to team up, we merged those two halves into one. T had been following the work of a detective in Colorado called Stacy Galbraith. One cold morning in January 2011, she had responded to a 999 call from the Denver suburbs. Arriving at an apartment block, she found a young woman, mid-twenties, who had been raped. Her attacker had broken into her apartment in the night, tied her up, and raped her. He had taken photographs. He seemed like he had done this before. In an interview, Galbraith told T how that was shocking enough, but when she returned home and told her husband, a police officer from another district, there was more shock to come. And in discussing kind of their days, like many couples do at the end of the day, um, her husband, David, realized that they were a very similar case in his jurisdiction. 
Detective Galbraith worked tirelessly, making connections with neighbouring police districts and following clues. A footprint in the snow, the tiniest samples of skin fragments, and then a sighting of the vehicle. And the reason it's such a break is because they finally had a license plate and a name of a registered owner of the vehicle. So for the first time, they had a potential suspect. Finally, she had a suspect within her sights. An ex-military man called Mark O'Leary. When police raided his house, they found the kit O'Leary had used to attack his victims, and photos, images of the women he had attacked. There amongst those photos, bound and gagged, was Marie. Just like Ken, T had pieced together his reporting of this complicated investigation through in-depth interviews and documentation from police records. But the journalists knew they wanted more. They wanted to talk to O'Leary himself. But luckily, again, for me, uh, the uh, in Colorado, there is a um, way to contact inmates by email if you want to sort of pay an amount of money to sort of uh, buy into an email system, which all the prisoners can, can use. Um, and so I basically sent a blind email to uh, Mr. O'Leary. And then word came through. They were being allowed a visit. Here's Ken again. So Rob and T and I all flew separately um, into Denver. And then in different cars, we each had a different rental car. We drove across the state to the interview. Driving across the state in an old Toyota Yaris rental car, Ken remembers worrying that an encroaching blizzard could keep him from this vital interview. There were all these dire warnings about what was going to happen. And we decided to go ahead and keep to our plans and just cross our fingers. Thankfully, the blizzard never materialized, and soon Ken was pulling into the prison car park. And the car just seemed like it was ready to give up. Um, so it, it pulled in just in time. So here we are, Robin, T and Ken, all arriving at the prison, ready to interview a man they now know had raped three women and attempted at least one other attack. A man who had worked in a chillingly methodical way, attacking random women across the country. Walking in through the prison gates, they had a lot of questions for him. And we were very fortunate because we thought we were going to be limited in time. We thought we might have only a half hour or so for the interview, maybe an hour. And as it turned out, they gave us um, virtually unlimited time. And we wound up talking to him, I believe, for close to three hours. We had a sense of what expect because he had previously been interviewed by the FBI. They had interviewed him for about four hours and in response to one of our records requests we had video of that interview. But still seeing someone on tape and, and having them sit across from you at a table they're, they're distinctly different. Um, he seemed to be candid about what he had done. Um, he spoke rather openly about where he traced his criminal behavior to, his compulsions to, um, and, and how he saw himself as sort of two different people, right? The, the, the Jekyll and Hyde analogy or whatever you want to call it. Um, there were some things that he wouldn't talk about. Um, he said that there were not other cases 
that, uh, or other crimes that he'd committed that the police didn't already know about. Um, we don't know if that's true or not. Coming out of the interview, hearing the cold details of how O'Leary had operated, Ken had a better sense of how he had got away with his crimes for so long. Yeah, what was really striking about him was how methodical he was and the level of study that he did to understand how police conducted investigations and what steps he could take to, to not come onto their radar. Um, he really was a student of, of rape, and he was a student of how rape investigations are conducted. That's one reason it took so long for the authorities to, to identify him and catch him. So now they had interviews with everyone from O'Leary to the police chiefs that brought him to justice and his victims. The reporters were ready to write up the story. And then, right at the last minute, another lead. Ken had been trying desperately to talk to Sergeant Mason, one of the key officers involved in looking into Marie's allegations. He'd been out of town and hadn't been able to talk to them. But the day before they published, Ken got the message. Sergeant Mason would talk. Here he recalls how it felt when he heard Marie had been right all along. I was driving to my office. It's one of those times that you're not going to forget, so. It was so shocking that um, this has been the, the one thing that, you know, where I seriously stepped back and um, questioned if, you know, if I should continue doing what I'm doing. We had spoken with some other people at the police department, but the detective was out of town at that time, and he got back into town right before we were about to publish the story. So the day before, um, Robin and I went and interviewed him at the Linwood Police Station. Then afterwards, I came back home. I work out of an office in my home, and I incorporated um, passages from the interview into the story that we had already written. So with months worth of reporting and tons of details, three different journalists working across the country, two on the print story, one on the radio, what happens when you come to write it up? Well, the answer was something fairly simple. Google Docs. That's right. Um, we were using uh, a Google Doc for both the print story and we also used a Google Doc when we wrote the script for the This American Life episode. And what was really unusual about that is this American life writes communally. Um, Robin and I both wrote a first draft, but then the week before the story airs, this American life has a conference table and they put all of these producers and people around the table. Everybody's got a laptop. Everybody has the script up, the Google doc up, and everybody's in edit mode. And, they write it collectively. As a, a reporter from a traditional newspaper background, that's terrifying, right? You, you tend to think of writing as a very lonely enterprise. You don't think of it as something done by a group of people sitting around a table. Finally, once I crossed all the T's and dotted the I's, 
it came time to publish. From WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life from Ira Glass. And I want to tell you about two police investigations. One of them is done so inspiringly well, it's like the detectives in it are like detectives on a television show. Smart and resourceful and great judgment and just police at their very best. The other case, same crime, lots of the same facts, is the opposite. It goes terribly. As well as the This American Life show, T and Ken published a beautiful long-form feature with ProPublica, more than 12,000 words in length. And the response to it was incredible. Well, the story really resonated when it went live back in uh, December of 2015. It began pinging around the internet at lightning speed. Um, the story was published in December, but it was the most shared story in the American media that year, despite being shared that late. There was a, a group that measures those things, and it was, it was shocking. Um, how the story spread. In fact, the story won Ken and T a Pulitzer Prize. Now Ken Armstrong and T Miller have written their findings into a book, a false report, a true story, which is out now. It goes into incredible detail from all sides of the story, from the police detectives that worked tirelessly to track down the rapist, to Mark O'Leary himself, as he discusses how it was that he came to commit such abhorrent crimes. And the story is also being developed for a Netflix series. Thanks to This American Life for use of those clips. You can find a link to that show, the online piece, and Ken and T's new book in the show notes. Our theme music is by Dice Muse. Other music in this episode by Poddington Bear and Fake Cats Project. This is the last in our second series of The Tip-Off. We've heard journalists making stories into songs, receiving brown paper envelopes with leads, creating new tech to crowdsource stories, and potentially risking their lives by digging into crimes. Thanks so much to your support of the show. I so, so appreciate your kind tweets and iTunes reviews. I'm hoping to bring the show back bigger and better in a few months' time. So do make sure you're subscribed and following us on Facebook and Twitter, at Tip Off Podcast. But for now, I'm Maeve McClendigan. This is The Tip Off. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 